Welcome to this week's edition of ComScore's podcast, Many Screens, Big Picture, with Paul Dergarabedian. On this episode, Paul speaks with Scott Mance. Scott is a longtime host, correspondent, film critic, and five-time Emmy-nominated producer. His credits include Access Hollywood, Entertainment Tonight, The Today Show, KTLA-TV, CNN, and the official live Golden Globes red carpet pre-show. He is an in-demand moderator of panels, press conferences, and guild Q&As for many Oscar-winning movies, and he may very well be the most passionate movie fan in the business. I'm so honored to have this guest. He and I are like brothers. When people see us together, they think we are brothers, and we are. We're not related by blood, but we are brothers in arms, movie fanatics, film lovers. I mean, you name it. We are on the same page. So Scott Mance, Movie Mance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I got to tell you, buddy, you know, we've known each other for almost, I want to say 20 years, almost 20 years. Oh my God, we were mere and children when we met. We were, we were such, so naive. We were being so green. Yes, yeah, so green. And I just think from, from the, the beginning, Paul, you know, you and I just, it wasn't just that we shared a deep love of film. You know, we, it wasn't like we just sort of like knew what we were talking about when it came to the business of movies. It's the energy, it's the passion, it's the enthusiasm. You know, I always felt, I always felt like talking to you about movies, the, uh, the energy was irresistible. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think the feeling might be mutual because people would say the same thing about me. And I just feel like that we just were, we were on the we same clicked. wavelength. We clicked. Yeah. We clicked it. right away. And I want to get into your career journey because I always like to ask people that. But let's go back a few years when we used to do, what was it called, Scott? Box Office Showdown? Box showdown? Office Showdown. Right. This yeah. Was in, the, uh, in the mid O's. That's right. Uh, when we, uh, when you know, at the time I was working for Access Hollywood, I was working there from 2000 to 2018, so a really long time. And uh, when they started going with their website, they started posting videos to uh, AccessHollywood.com. Uh, you and I would record a weekly, I guess, uh, podcast, but it was a video, so it was That's like right. a YouTube sort of thing, and it was called Box Office Showdown. We would break down how the movies did at the box office, why movies did great, what kind of records they broke, why a movie bombed. And we would get into it and we would do it pretty quick. But we got in, did our thing, and we got out. And it was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I remember. We should bring that back, Scott. We totally should. I think, I mean, you know, we'll do it when all the movie theaters open. Uh, (laughs) I would love to do that. So I want to go back, though, more to the beginning of your your journey. And I, I really think it is that. Uh, and I learned something about everyone on these podcasts that maybe I didn't know. But where did your love of film start? And then from that, how did this become a career? Because wow. it's not a job because you love it. It's it's something you were just, to me, in my mind, born to do. How did this all start for you? Well, really, it started, you know, I was I was born and raised in Philadelphia. That's where I'm from. And my my diet, my passion was watching movies. And when I was a little kid and my parents would take me to the movies, they took me to see movies like, you know, of course, Star Wars, but uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and, uh, you know, Alien and, you know, Back to the Future, Blade Runner, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, these were the movies that I grew up with. But at the same time, these were the movies that changed the game. These were the movies that that really changed the way ho- Hollywood made movies, the way movies were marketed, in some ways the way movies were merchandised, the entire way that that studios went about sort of thinking through the whole big picture of movies really started in the mid 70s with Jaws and then Star Wars and that whole period of time between like 77 with Star Wars and Close Encounters and 1985 with movies like Back to the Future and The Goonies, you know, that was like a period of time where you were, if you were of the right age going to the movies and seeing movies like, like all the movies I just mentioned for the first time, that was like when our parents were getting into music and got into the Beatles. It was that kind of an impact. And that was really where my love of film came about. But movies were always a passion. But And what the period you're talking about is really a golden era. Not maybe the golden, because there's many golden era of cinema, if you will. Uh, I think, though, those movies, when you're talking about most of those or many of those were part of that summer movie season, the film school generation who created the whole idea of movies being for a younger audiences and then the the era of the blockbuster came to be so your formative years in terms of film were with those great films all of which are classic and all those that you just mentioned many uh, many people though love movies but they are not predestined to turn it into a career how did you do that what was your path to taking that passion love for movies and turning it into a, a lifelong love but something that you do I don't even want to call it a job. Well, you, you know, I never, I never in a million years, Paul, I never thought I would ever have a career in movies. And really, when when I think back to the reason I moved to California, and, and there it became possible for me to go off in this direction, there is one thing I have to give credit to. And wait till you hear what it is. Are you ready? I can't wait. It's Star Trek. It is Star Trek. I was was a massive, diehard Trekkie since I was six years old. I watched watched Star Trek all the time when I was a kid. It was on every night at 7 o'clock on WPHL Channel 17 Philadelphia. So then, of course, I got into the movies. And I I used to go to these Star Trek conventions when I was – a kid when I was a teenager and they were all run by this one company called creation entertainment. And after I got out of school, after I got out of Penn state, I had an accounting degree and I was working for about a year as an accountant for a life insurance company. And Paul, I hated it. I Actuarial hated tables. It. Oh Actuarial my God. tables. <laughs> I, it was first of all, accounting itself is boring. Accounting for a life insurance company Shoot me now. I mean, like I was, Paul, I was, I was 21 years old and I was like already counting the days till I could retire. And that I can't see you doing that. That's uh, not high enough energy for you. No way. No way. Vocation, if you will. But but so this was like 1991 and uh, I had gone to a Star Trek convention for the first time in like five years uh, because, you know, William Shatner was the guest and I was a big, big Captain Kirk fan. Of course. And this was also around the time that Star Trek was celebrating its 25th anniversary and also around the time that Star Trek The Next Generation was really 
hitting its stride and actually becoming more popular than the original series. So I went to this convention, there were like 3,000 people, and I thought if I could get involved with something like that, that would be great. So long story short, I reached out to this company. They needed someone to be their financial controller. They were moving from New York to Los Angeles, and they needed someone to make the move with them. And they they loved that I had an accounting degree, and they loved that I love science fiction and Star Trek and that I've been to their conventions. So in December of 91, I moved out to LA, and I worked for this company for about 10 years, traveling the country, going all over and hosting, moderating panels and emceeing these conventions. And also, of course, handling like the financial background of the company. And now I was like, wait a minute, I'm in Los Angeles now. I'm in Hollywood. And movies, which were always my passion, always my hobby. Now I can maybe do something more with them. So like in the round, I guess 97 or 98, I really started to think about what was next because I didn't want to stay at this company my whole life. It was a great job to have in my 20s, but I was uh, I was approaching 30 and I was really trying to figure out the next step. And right around this time, Paul, you know, the internet was really starting to- Oh, that's right. That was that time when everything was kind of coming together in that realm. Yeah. I mean, my timing, to, I got to tell you, uh, I attribute my success, my career to skill- expertise, luck, and timing. And yeah. it, it, that all came to fruition when I first got that job in 91. And it came to fruition again in the late 90s because I had known someone who was running an entertainment news website that doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Big Time Hollywood. And he said, you know, look, I have you ever thought about writing reviews, you know, writing a, a film review? And I honestly, the answer was no, but I figured I would give it a try. And all this time, you know, for those years, I was really trying to figure out where do I belong in, in show business? Where do I belong in Hollywood? Where do I belong in movies? And after taking courses at USC and UCLA, you know, I, I did script coverage for William Morris for a while. I realized, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a director. I'm not a screenwriter. You know, I, I thought about development, but even that wasn't like floating my boat. But I went to see a film to review. My very first movie that I reviewed was on July 16th, 1999 at the Village Theater in Westwood at 3.45 p.m. And that movie, Paul, was Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Bad. You know, I'm a huge Kubrick fan, so you've got my attention right now. Well, yeah. well what an auspicious beginning Yeah. writing a way. review. I mean, what a, I, what a movie. I know that you're a big Cooper fan. You had that really thick, big red book. Still you know? have it. Uh, yeah, have I, it. I have it too. And I got it because of you. <laughs> That's right. So, um, but yeah. the gospel of Kubrick is the, my job. Well, that movie, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to really sort of dive in and, you know, start writing reviews, that film was a great movie to start with because there's, it, it is a Kubrick movie and it, it was his first movie in 12 years since full metal jacket and I spent the whole weekend working on this thing, going back to it, tweaking it, editing it, deleting it, adding to it. And the, the, the editor of the site really liked the review and said, if you can do these reviews every week, you can have your own little column on this thing. So I did that. I quit my job and uh, started doing that, I would say, full time, even though I wasn't making a whole lot of money. But 
you know, then I started to really figure out, well, uh, where, where can I go from here? And that was when I started thinking about broadcast. And that was when I reached out to Entertainment Tonight, Access Hollywood, uh, CNN, Headline News, Extra, and Access Hollywood bit. And um, from that point forward, in, uh, in 2000, uh, I started working for Access Hollywood as a segment producer. Now, let me go back, though. I want to get to that. But I recall the first time I went live on TV. It was on CNN. I'm talking back in 94, maybe. In the control room, they could probably hear my heart beating through the lavalier mic because I was shit scared, man. I'm like, oh, my God. And my dad was like the biggest CNN fan. And I'm like, my dad's going to be watching this. I was so nervous, Scott. I can't even tell you. Now it's like I'm like a fish in water when I'm on camera and I love it. But you think back to those early days. How did you feel? I, I, it seems like you're a natural, but it's also a skill. It's, it, I don't know that anyone's exactly born with it, but were you? did you have similar feelings like, oh, my God, I'm about to go live to the world right now? Or was it like for you a, a day at the beach, so to speak? I, I would say, first of all, you know, when I started working for Access Hollywood, I was a behind the scenes guy. I was a producer. You know, I was a talent booker. I was uh, going out in the field and doing interviews, but not on camera. It wasn't until like around 2005 or 2006 that I started interviewing talent where I would be on camera. And also around the time that I started doing reviews on camera and also doing reviews on behalf of Access Hollywood for other people. And also around the time that I started moderating Q&As and panels and conversations in theater, it all happened around the same time. The answer to your question is never got nervous. Never, not at all. Never once, not then, not now. And I That's really, amazing. I really think the reason for that, Paul, is because I had gone around the country throughout the 90s and hosting these Star Trek connections. Yeah, I was going to say, because when you did that, you were much younger and you were thrust in front of a lot of people, I presume, doing these things live. So I think that really prepped you. So by then, it was like old hat, like, hey, I have been doing this already. And I think also because you're so passionate and knowledgeable, you're just, it's like, you know, it's it's where opportunity or excuse me, preparation meets opportunity. You were prepared and then you had these opportunities. And that's really impressive. I, I, I think it is. And now, yeah, absolutely. When I see you doing Q&As, I saw you uh, doing it at the Arclight oh, with uh, David, David Crosby, the Cros, <laughs> and Cameron Crowe. And I'm a huge music fan, as you know, and we'll get into the, our love of music a little bit later in the podcast. But I was sitting in the audience going, I'd be shitting my pants if I was up there. Like these two guys are like heroes to me. And you're just like, oh, hey, David. Hey, Cameron. Hey, Cross. <laughs> hey, Cameron. How's it going? You're just like naturally unflappable. Whereas I tend to get starstruck, uh, particularly by music, people in the music realm. But I think that's your, your great skill is that you comfort us. The, you calm us down in the audience because you're so comfortable up there. And I don't know if you'd, I think you'd met Cameron Crowe before. I don't know if you met Cros, David Crosby, but tell me a little bit about that day, how that came to be. Cause that was, and it's a great movie. It's incredible. David Crosby, remember my name so good. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that came to be uh, and what that was like to interview those two Titans. Well, of you know, music listen, and movies. 
Paul, there are the, my favorite moments of my career uh, were from moderating these Q&As and panels because, you know, if I go into a junket room, you know, press day and interview talent there, you're only going to get six to eight minutes. Um, you know, when, I, when you're on a red carpet, you're going to get even less time than that. But moderating a QA and a in theaters like that one at the Arclight on that Sunday, it was a Sunday night. That's right. Uh, it's, it's different because you're getting 30 minutes in front of an audience and I feed off of the audience. I feed off the crowd, the bigger, the crowd, the better going back to the nineties when I was really getting into traveling the country and moderating and hosting these conventions, you know, it started off, I would do, I guess the conventions would be maybe 800 people in the room, maybe a thousand, but Paul, I remember on May 1st, 1994, okay, I'm really good with dates. You're really good with dates. You know that I'm good with dates. Yeah. So it was in Portland, Oregon, and I was doing a, a convention with William Shatner, and there were 3,000 people in the audience, and I loved it. I just fed off of it, and the they, 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 the thing, the reason that they fed off of, of me, so to speak, Paul, was because they could tell that I was a fan. I knew my stuff. I wasn't just some schmo who was there to host the event, whatever. I was a Trekkie and they knew it. And they were like, wow, this guy's one of us. So when it comes to moderating these Q&As in theaters, I'm a movie person just like you, just like everyone else in the audience. And with, the, with Remember My Name, I had seen the film, uh, the documentary at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. And I loved the movie. I just loved how honest, honest it was. It was oh, not. I, absolutely. There were, uh, David Crosby laid his soul bare, yeah. literally warts and all, everything. And then to, to talk to, to Graham Nash and Stephen Stills and Neil Young, you know, all the CSNY folks who were involved in that, the wonderful musicians. But to see that path how Crosby started out some tragedies early on in his, his life and obviously his issues with drugs and, and being put in jail and all these things just make him an incredibly uh, rich character for a documentary. But that voice, I think they say in the documentary, Cameron Crowe was saying his voice sounds exactly the same, all that mileage on him and the years but that angelic voice still coming through. Amazing. Uh, it's really amazing. You know, the, the thing that, that really struck me when I first saw the film was that I didn't realize until I saw the movie that he had been very, very prolific in these last few years recording something like, like five new studio albums in just a four year period. Now, Paul, as you know, cause I know you and I have very similar taste in music, the music that we like when we hear a musician like Brian Wilson or Paul McCartney do new music, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be at number one on the Billboard chart like it used to be. But the music that they're still doing is very potent and immediate. And exactly what you said just now about David Crosby's voice, it sounds just as beautiful and angelic as it did back in the 60s. And that you, you can't say that. I mean, I hate to say it because uh, you know how much I love McCartney, but 
you know, he just can't reach those those high notes at 77 years old anymore. And, and no, most can't. I mean, that's that's a natural thing. I can barely sing right now. I can't imagine in <laughs> you know, 30 years, but you're right. And and even the Beach Boys and, and again, b- bands that were built on harmonies, that's very difficult to do even in the studio, even in your prime, to have har- three-part harmony or four-part harmony going when you're in your 70s, I've seen the Beach Boys live and they're amazing, but it's very difficult to recreate that often live. But I, I think going back to, to Cameron Crowe, no better of a director producer for a David Crosby documentary than the man who directed Almost Famous, one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, so I know that had to have been a thrill for you. And yeah, I know I that mean- the audience there loved what you did. I remember people were giving you high fives after... And you didn't even know I was there. We ran into, I didn't even know you were going to be moderating. All of a sudden you show, I'm like, what's my brother doing out there on stage? And then we went outside and people were high-fiving you. And I just thought it was so cool. I think also people are living vicariously through you when you do these Q&As. Because we'd all like to, who wouldn't want to sit down in conversation with David Crosby uh, and Cameron Crowe? That's quite amazing. And I know, and this is a good transition into La La Land, which uh, I know probably other than it, people actually involved directly in the making of the movie, you had such a high profile. I think you were really important in spreading the word about that movie. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with La La Land and uh, how you, I, I think I, I know I saw you interview Ryan Gosling. And again, you seem like you're just sitting with an old friend, no nerves at all, whereas most people be like, holy crap, I'm interviewing Ryan Gosling. You just do this, but you love that movie. I think when you love something, then you're all in. Tell me a bit about La La Land and then your famous moment on TV uh, well, that came as a result of that. Paul, I got to tell you, the the love that I have for that film in particular, and and someone, uh, there was a there was an event just recently where Lionsgate live streamed La La Land. Well, that's right. And I, yeah. And I was, uh, I was tweeting along live tweeting, uh, never before seen photos behind the scenes, photos, trivia, and somebody commented, uh, am I allowed to swear on this? Hell yeah, you are. Okay. All right, Go good. So somebody commented someone, you know, just some random follower on Twitter. He goes, wow, man, when you love something, you really love the shit out of it. <laughs> and that's the truth. And that is yeah. definitely true when it comes to like movies, when it comes to Star Trek, when it comes to the Beatles, and when it comes to a film like La La Land. Now, of all the films over the last 21 years since I've been reviewing movies in one capacity or another, the thing that I love being able to do the most is to champion a film. And even though my time at Access changed and evolved over the years because movies are my passion, but Access went from being a kind of like entertainment news show to a gossip show. And that wasn't really my cup of tea, but I I still felt like I was on a national show, a national broadcast television show that had a website to go along with it. And I felt like if I can champion a small independent film and really get behind it and say to the nation, you've got to see this movie. Then I feel like I am doing not just my job, but it is, it is my purpose. 
to champion films. And over the years, Paul, there have been a number of movies that I really, really got behind, like Lost in Translation in 2003. Amazing film. I remember in 2008, okay, at the Toronto Film Festival in 2008, when I saw Slumdog Millionaire, I went back to LA after that movie and said, this is the one. And they're like, yeah. Like, well, who's in it? And I said, uh, well, it's Danny Boyle directed it. And they're like, who? And I said, no, 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 trust me. Just trust me. And train spotting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, train spotting. Yeah. Um, there's an access type of movie. Um, but also, also like The Big Sick and uh, Call Me By Your Name. Anyway, uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, but La La Land. Okay, Paul. So when I was at the Telluride Film Festival, in 2016, and at 2.30 p.m. on Friday, September 2nd, at the Chuck Jones Theater, when I saw La La Land for the first time, I was smitten, smitten by that movie, by the, the scope of it, by the fusion of how Opening it- Opening sequence? Scott? Oh, come on. Uh, another day Everyone of sun. Right. Everyone's yeah. godsmacked when they see that, that opening- on the freeway, and especially people who live in LA were like, how the hell did they do that? How'd they how get that the freeway? hell did they do that? Indeed? Yeah. Oh, so, so, but you know, like I, the movie is really a fusion because it feels like a throwback to the classic, like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals where they're, where the, the, uh, the, the dance number is done in one take full body shot, but it also of course feels very modern and contemporary because it takes place like today. Uh, but the costume design, the music, Justin Hurwitz, Oscar-winning score, and of course the chemistry between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. I just felt, and also the love letter. The movie is a love letter for Hollywood. It is a love letter to Los Angeles, and and it it just looked at L.A. the way I look at it, you know, with this love for it. And but from that point forward, for the next six months, I would you were not- all about it. You were all La La Land all the time. Yes, I was. And I love that because Damien Chazelle had done Whiplash, which is another brilliant J.K. Simmons. Just yeah. unbelievable. That whole movie, My, uh, Miles Teller, it was just a great movie. But at such a young age to have this level of talent and then Justin Hurwitz, the the music sounds like someone three times older. Like the the what the gravitas that Justin brings to the soundtrack, to the, to the score, if you will, of, of these movies is just... They, the word wonderkin gets thrown around, but that doesn't even do him justice. It's amazing. That combination of Chazelle and Hurwitz and then that cast, particularly in La La Land. No wonder you were all about it. It's 100% uh, you. Well, it, it's, a, it's a man's movie. It right is there. a man's movie. And Paul, you, you just said it right there. Uh, among, on top of everything else, I found myself in the film. I found myself in the movie. Uh Personally, I found myself in the movie. But what happened was from that point forward, September 2nd, uh, every chance that I had to cover the film, talk about it, like basically count down to the day that it opened on December, I think it was December 9th, uh, 2016. I reviewed it out of Telluride. I covered the movie at the Toronto Film Festival at the premiere. Then I covered it again, interviewing Damien Chazelle at the uh, Savannah Film Festival. Then I covered the AFI Film Festival, <laughs> the regular LA premiere. And then just I, I just was, was, was 
very much championing that movie all through award season, predicting that it was going to go all the way and win the big one. And and it won it won seven Golden Globes more than any other film. It won every Golden Globe that it was nominated for. But throughout the course of all this, and this is really where where my uh, love for the film got noticed. It got noticed not just by people watching Access, not just by friends like you and other peers and colleagues in the industry that knew that I was definitely going crazy for it. I was posting all about it on Facebook, on Twitter. I don't know if Instagram was up back then. Or maybe it just, it just got started going. But when I started getting noticed by the filmmakers because they knew how much I loved the film, that was, that was when I knew that like more than any other movie – that I was able to really get behind and champion. That was the one that had the biggest impact from, from my really being a cheerleader for it. Can you tell me a little bit about your TV mats moment? Oh, uh, well, uh, there, there were a few, but the one, the one that I was really, uh, I guess, noticed known for, for <laughs> is so, uh, December 11th, I think it was, a, it was a Sunday. It was either December 10th or December 11th. So that morning I went to the Arclight in Hollywood at the Cinerama Dome after a 10 o'clock screening at the Dome, 850 people sold out screening at the Arclight world famous Cinerama Dome Iconic. And, did, and did a Q and a with producer Justin Hurwitz director Damien Chazelle, and soon-to-be Oscar winner Emma Stone. And the energy in the room, if you could put that in a bottle and sell it, you'd uh, never have to work again. It was it was amazing. So then four hours later, I'm driving over to the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica, and I sat at the La La Land table. Yes, right you did. To, right next to Emma Stone. Right next to her. Like, she's right here. She's right and next to me. Were you eating? Was there food and drink? No, no. I mean, first of all, <laughs> the food at the Critics' Choice Awards—it's terrible. <laughs> the first thing I did after I was done with the Critics' Choice Awards, I went to Jack in the Box. Um, <laughs> but Paul, so so, but I was sitting next to Emma Stone, and like I just saw her four hours before. And by this point, you know, everybody at the table—you know, Ryan Gosling is across the table, Damien Chazelle, Justin Hurwitz—they're all across the table, and they're like, "Oh, hey, Scott," you know, like. Well, hey, buddy. You know they <laughs> they knew me, and I'm like I was part of the part of the team. So, but then Paul, what happened was the very last award of the night was Best Picture. So John Travolta, John Travolta gets up there, and the Critics' Choice for Best Picture, or paraphrasing whatever he said, went La La Land. And Paul, I lifted off like a freaking Saturn Five <laughs> yep. steroids. You were like friend. first man. I was first Mance. <laughs> you were first Mance and you were I, first man standing. <laughs> I jumped up like, like Michael Jordan, Shaq and Kobe all at the same time. And, and the camera caught that the camera caught that. And so I go into work the next day and everybody's like shaking their head. Like, dude, what is wrong with you? I said, what are you talking about? You're like, you acted like you made the movie. <laughs> well, you, you were more you excited. Did. You were more excited than Ryan Gosling and Damien Chazelle. They just got up like, yeah, you know, here's another award. You know, and I just got up like, wow! 
you know. <laughs> I remember I saw you on TV <laughs> in that moment. It was amazing. But Paul, you know, the other moment that I'm really proud of during that period of time. So, so back in September, because I saw the movie the week before at the, at the uh, Telluride Film Festival, I'd already seen the movie and I knew it was going to be big. So there I'm, I'm at the Toronto Film Festival at the Princess of Wales Theater and, and all the red carpet press, they're all lined up on the inside of the theater and, and getting assigned a spot to cover a premiere in Toronto is like a lottery. You know, they tell right. you where you're going to be and you don't know until you get there. Well, somebody must it's have been coveted. on my side. It's coveted. And and I just happened this one time only. I happened to get the very number one position on the red carpet. So for those of you who don't know, that's huge because what happens in those lines down the red carpet, by the time the talent gets to the end, after being interviewed with many of the same questions over and over, by the time they get to the end of that gauntlet, they're spent, they're done. And often the people at the end of that, unfortunately, get bypassed. So to be number one in that line is huge, right? Huge, huge. And Paul, I, uh, the entire time I've been covering the Toronto Film Festival, every year since 2006, that's never happened. But but so like, uh, like is divine intervention on my side here that I'm actually getting to be in the number one position at La La Land? So, so Emma Stone walks in. All right. She's wearing this yellow dress. And I swear to God, she looked just like her character on the movie poster, you know, where she's dancing with Ryan Gosling. So, you know, I, I've interviewed Emma Stone quite a few times over the years, going back to like super bad and easy a and the Spider-Man movie. So she, she knew who I was, you know, knew my face. So she walks in and I, I told her I had already seen the film and how much I loved it. So I said, I'll bet you that this movie is going to be like Titanic. So she goes, well, oh my God, like Titanic's like one of my favorite movies ever. So, okay. I said, you know, I don't know, box office wise. I mean, it'd have to make 1.8 billion, but in terms of just like the phenomenon, the popularity, it's going to be big. It's going to be just like Titanic. Okay. So that was September 12th. Okay. That was September 12th. You with these dates, you're amazing. I just, I'm good with dates. So, so then five months later in January, in January, at the SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, I was doing interviews on camera. I was I was lucky enough to be a, an on-camera correspondent for Access covering the, uh, the, the uh, SAG Awards, and it was very, very exciting. So Emma Stone comes up to the platform, and I was like so excited. And she was like, oh, my God, do you love it? Do you love it? It was like a week after the Oscar nominations. It was a yeah. week after the Oscar nominations. Now – this is the clincher here, Paul. La La Land was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, the same number as Titanic. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So there I was in September <laughs> saying the movie would be as big as Titanic. And here we are just a week before the movie gets nominated for the same number of Academy Awards as Titanic. So I said to Emma Stone, <laughs> on, I said to her, she was on the platform with her brother, Spencer, Spencer, who's a really, really super nice guy. Um, and I said to him and to her, I said, do you remember what I told you in Toronto? And she goes, yes. And I said, what was it? She says, you said it would be as big as Titanic. And so <laughs> I said, don't you love it? And she's like, do you love it? I think you love it. So, but then it hit me, Paul, here's where it hit me that, that between September and January, 
Emma Stone has been all over the world doing interview after interview with every right. outlet. Can you imagine world. how many people she has talked to about this movie? Hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. Yet she remembered something that I told her on a on a premiere line five months before. Like she must have done like 300 interviews around sure. the world and she immediately picked it up. Yes, yeah, she said it will be just like Titanic. So she remembered and that that was cool that she she absolutely remembered. But then, you know, after all that was over, and yes, I was definitely crushed when it won Best Picture for two minutes. So so remember La La Land at the Hollywood Bowl? Did you yeah. go to that? I didn't go. I'm sure you did every night. <laughs> okay, well, I went. Uh, it was a Friday night that I went. It was uh, May 27th. It was, it was Memorial Week. Extravaganza with the movie, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, they they did. Uh, they showed the movie on the big screen with a live orchestra conducted by. I love when uh, they do that. At the, yeah. Who was it conducted by? It was conducted by two time Academy Award winner Justin Hurwitz. There you go. The guy who did the music. So of course. So so I was invited to go backstage after the show and. And I went backstage and I thought, wow, the Beatles were back here. And, but then I was in this room, not very, not very big at all, but like Damien was there. The cinematographer was there. The choreographer was there. The costume designer was there. And, and then I see Emma Stone and she's very chill. And so I went over and I just said, Hey buddy. And she turned around and she gave me this big wide eyed look took a deep breath, gave me a big hug, big tight hug and said, thank you for everything. I mean, come on, oh man. Oh my God. Chills. She Chills. Said, and this was, this was backstage at the bowl? This was at backstage the at the Hollywood Bowl, you know, two months, three months after the Oscars. And it was, first of all, for all of them, it was like a reunion to all see each other again. And, 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 the publicist for the film, one of the publicists, this guy, Albert, he said, he said, you know, we, we really did think of you as part of the team. I mean, you know, that that's, that, you know, I was going to ask you about your proudest moment. You just answered it and you said it. it. And the it. thing, what I think this says, not only about you, which it says a lot because you really, again, that passion is infectious. It's real. It's organic. It's not manufactured. This is what you do. You can't fake anything like that. If you're not feeling it, on the flip side of that, people will know too. And that's well, the beauty of your reviews. You're not beholden to anyone. You you say what you have to say. That gives you ultimate credibility. But uh, this also says a lot about Emma Stone in particular, that a, a star of her caliber to be so chill, down to earth, I think is really a testament to how it seems to me. I, I don't know her, but like she's a, a, at her core, a very nice person who just happens to be in an extraordinary position with an extraordinary career. I, I mean, just to show you how chill down to earth and how genuine she is, you know, cause I, I already, I definitely got that impression from other times I had interviewed her, but, but I think by this point, you know, she could see how, how much the movie meant to me and how I've really put myself out there in terms of championing the film in every way I possibly could. So so then by this point, the Blu-ray had come out and I was going back to the Telluride Film Festival in September. This time, Emma Stone was going to be there for uh, Battle of the Sexes, the movie where she plays Billie Jean yeah. King. 
right. Okay. With Steve Carell. Yep. Steve Carell is, and, and, uh, so, so after the film, I went around to the side of the theater where there weren't any people. And I just was just checking my phone to uh, check emails or whatever. And there's Emma Stone standing there with her publicist, just the totally approachable. No one's really around to bother her. So I said, Hey, and she goes, Oh, Hey. And then, you know, big hugs and everything. And I said, wait a minute, I have something for you. And I'm reaching in my backpack and to take it out. And she looks at me and says, is it La La Land? And I said, <laughs> yes, it is. And I said, would you sign this for me? So instead of taking it, you know, signing it and giving it back, she takes the DVD, the Blu-ray, she takes the Sharpie and she walks away. She walks like 15 feet away from me with her back to me. And she's literally standing there with a pen in her mouth, thinking about what to write. So then I see her write it down. She gives it back to me and I took it and I didn't look at it. And then I hugged her and I said, oh, I love the film, you know, Battle of the Sexes, which I did. I thought it was a very overlooked, underappreciated movie. 100%. You're right. You know, uh, it was overlooked. It came out too early in the season. It should have come out in like December. Anyway, so give her a hug, you know, say, you know, bye, see you around. So then I walk out onto the street and then I take the Blu-ray out to look and see. Yeah, you couldn't wait. You're bursting, right? This is what she wrote to Scott, the number one La La Lander. We love you, Emma Stone. Holy crap, man. I took that home. I put it like a a Mylar bag to preserve (laughs) it. Lock and key. (laughs) Yeah, lock and key. (laughs) But but you know, like like ever since ever since that movie sort of ran its course. And starting with Telluride and I guess now ending with the Hollywood Bowl experience. Um, you know, there there definitely been other films that I've really gotten behind. Most recently, I was a big, big champion. I loved Parasite. I knew that was going to win Best Picture. Oh, we I could do it. a whole half hour just on that movie and maybe I'll have you back. That was a film that I think just was extraordinary. And that that movie, I just like that movie was about something. It was had something to say. And every time you see that movie, Paul, uh, you have a different experience because your loyalties are always shifting back and forth between the two families. And it's and and I really felt like ultimately when it came down to it for for 2019, wouldn't it be really really great? If the best movie of the year actually won the Oscar for best picture and it, it freaking happened. Yeah. Well, Scott, I want a million dollars. Can you just think of that? And then maybe it'll <laughs> sure. just come true. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that too, because Parasite to me is not, it's a fantastic film, but it's not a just sit back and let it flow over you. You have to actually be engaged in the movie. And I love what the director said about don't let the one inch tall barrier of subtitles keep you from watching this movie. And I love subtitles because you can't just like chill out, fall asleep, look away. You're in the movie. And I think a movie like that does a lot to springboard other movies, other subtitled films into that blockbuster status. And even, and I call this movie a blockbuster. It made about $54 million total in North America, but it's still a blockbuster. Absolutely. The definition isn't just it has to make a ton of money. It's about what the movie represents, its journey, its journey from inception to acceptance. 
from audiences, then perhaps awards and great box office along the way. That's all good. But great point, Scott. I think Parasite is just an incredible movie. But I notice there's kind of a common thread here. You like movies that are challenging a bit, even though La La Land may not look challenging. Think about the movie musical, how tough of a time those films have had. Now, Moulin Rouge, I loved. And Chicago, there's been great musicals. But there are certain genres that have a, a tougher time finding an audience. That's where I think you come in, my friend, because you are the one who – the term influencer is fairly new. It's it's part of the vernacular as a result of social media. But before social media, you were an influencer. And so I oh, think you're you're wow. carrying on that role, right? And because I know you have a lot of followers on Twitter, and we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. But what uh, you're you're very um, you're accessible on social media. You're out there everywhere. I know you have a ton of followers. I think it's really cool that you can be that shepherd. You can be the person kind of curating movies. Your opinion matters. When you say a movie is great, people are at least going to go. Well, if Movie Man says it's great. It may not necessarily on its face look like my cup of tea, but I'm going to check it out. And that's really, really important. I think that's vital because we all need – in the music world, that happens too. I remember reading Rolling Stone magazine back in the day, and I didn't know what a particular band was. Never, I'm like, Smashing Pumpkins, who is this? That's a weird name, and I'm talking about way back in the day. So I go start listening to their music. Now I'm a lifelong fan. So I think that's that's important what you're doing. I really do. Well, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, you, you have film critics like, my, you know, my favorite film critic of them all, really, for me personally, A is an Angelino, you know, being here for, you know, almost uh, 30 years now. And and also just because I like his writing, I, I hear his voice in his writing, and I definitely like his taste, is uh, Kenneth Turan from the LA Times. Of course, uh, I think a he's legend. an excellent writer. You know, of course, I mean, I, I, as a as a broadcaster on camera critic, absolutely no question, I was very very much influenced by Leonard Maltin. Leonard Maltin is a a hero. He is. I love a, Leonard uh, Maltin, the nicest man, so smart, just brilliant. I've smart. I know him over the years. I've known him. I, we're not like hanging out at each other's house, but I see him at various functions and we hit it off right away. And his wife is wonderful. Just, Alice. just a fantastic, there you go, Alice. And just a great man. But I love that you are in the footsteps of giants walking in those footsteps, but you're creating your own path. And I really love that, Scott. Well, I appreciate it. You know, it is not, it is not easy. It's always a challenge. Uh, it is just, just because I've had, uh, success in one form or another, in one platform or another, in one medium or another, whether it's broadcast, online, written, uh, uh, radio. I've d- done a lot of uh, radio. Uh, I, th- I don't want to be pigeonholed into just writing or just doing broadcast. You can do I mean, it I all. Like, I like writing, but I think I think my my excitement and passion and energy for a film will come through when I am doing it on radio, on a podcast, or definitely on camera, whether it's YouTube or a broadcast, because again, the energy is irresistible. Like, like when you're watching someone have fun, uh, if you have fun watching them, like when you watch Paul, okay. When you watch a hard day's night and you're watching the Beatles have fun, you're having fun watching them. Exactly. And and it's just like that line. I going back to La La Land, that line that uh, Emma Stone's character Mia says, she goes, 
People love what other people are passionate about. And I'm, I have a much better, I have a much better chance of projecting my excitement and, and love for a film when I'm talking about it when, than when I'm writing about it. So I prefer to do it in a broadcast form one way or another. But but it's it's always evolving. Film criticism is always changing. It's not like it was with Pauline Kael or when you had Cisco and Ebert. And now you've got all these influencers and, and YouTube critics as well as the written uh, reviewers like Tony Scott at the Times or Justin Chang at the LA Times. Um, it's always evolving. But I just want to continue to champion to champion movies. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I will champion movies for food. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. I want to get to a couple of things. One is I've seen you everywhere. I've seen, I've been in a taxi cab in New York city and you know, the little screens in the back of the taxi cab, there's Scott. I've been watching TV and there's Scott at the, the critics choice Awards. There yeah. you are. Um, uh, I've been at the gas station and they have those screens and there you are. You're everywhere, which I think the ubiquity of you is so important because no matter what, you're always going. You're like the energizer bunny. You just keep going and going. Thank you so much. I appreciate your passion, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, but above all your friendship for all these years. Look forward to seeing you soon. This was great. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on many screens, big picture for ComScore, Scott. Anything for you, my brother, and thank you for being a great colleague and, most importantly, a great friend and brother. Always, and we will have a drink soon. We will get together. We will break bread at the very least very soon, I hope, or we'll just do it virtually on camera. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, buddy. It is 5 o'clock somewhere. Thank you so much, Scott. Take care.